Welcome, everyone. How we doing? Doing well. Good, Good morning. Yeah, doing well. Everybody enjoy this uh, absolutely disgusting chapter. My favorite so far. <laughs> <laughs> the title of the chapter no. is... What was it? What is the title of the chapter? Sexualizing psychology, politicizing sex. Yes, sexualizing Mm -hmm. psychology and politicizing sex. And so I have to just begin, well, a couple things, by saying uh, this is a very necessary chapter. So anybody who is following along Strange New World by Carl Truman, you don't want to skip this chapter, but you'll be tempted to because it's just so uh, stomach-turning to read Freud and William Reich and just their view on sort of the undoing of natural laws with regards to human sexuality. But I thought what I would do, but some of this will be necessary to um, to actually cover. I thought I would read his conclusion because the conclusion is so good. Mm-hmm. It, just ra- it just brings all the threads together, if you will indulge me. Um, he says, with Freud... We find the psychologized self, we noted in Rousseau and the Romantics, uh, being given a decidedly sexual shape. Not only is the inner space of feeling now fundamental to identity, it is also defined primarily by its sexual desires. Sex is no longer a matter of behavior, of what we do, it is a matter of who we are. And this helps us to understand why language such as straight, gay, or bisexual now makes sense, even if one is a virgin and has never engaged in sexual activity. It is not the act, but the desire, or the orientation of that desire that defines the person now. This changes everything. Reich and those who stand in his wake make explicit the uh, obvious implications of this shift. He says, if a person is in some deep sense the sexual desires that they experience, then how society treats those desires is an extremely important political question. Further, the political struggle itself shifts into the psychological realm. Oppression is now not simply something that involves being deprived of material prosperity or physical freedom, It is something that has a psychological component. And while Reich brings out in sharp terms the implications of this for sexual codes, for education of children, and for society's attitude to to sexual behavior, it has implications far beyond sex. We can now see that once identity is psychologized, anything that is seen to have a negative impact upon someone's psychological identity can potentially come to be seen as harmful, even as a weapon that does serious damage. Uh, And this includes the words and ideas that stand over and against those identities that society chooses to sanction. So pretty good summary of the whole chapter. Uh, Give me your feelings about I Honestly, I had trouble even just getting through it because it was so stomach-turning to read it. But I made it, and that was my impression. Uh, give me your thoughts. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, the way that Truman's able to um, 
talk about these concepts, these ideas about what's behind this cultural change. And this really, if you're just following along, this is the natural yeah. next sequential step. And so you understand exactly what he's saying in the conclusion. If um, my identity is no longer related to uh, my creator or those around me, but whatever I internalize, um, and in our fallen state, our internal feelings are off are often so sexualized. Yeah. Then that natural step is to go right towards sexual identity, identity. as a defining characteristic of who I am. Uh, so it's it just helpful. You know, I, I agree with you. It's not pleasant to read. Uh, these these men were were not good men in any stretch of the imagination. Uh, not by any stretch. See yeah. how they deal with their own children and you know families or anything like that or what they're trying to do to the nuclear family. But um, yeah, I, I understand if their thinking is in that vein right. where that step was. And yeah, it makes sense. I, I thought the word psychologizing was so important. Yeah. I mean, because clearly there are sentences in here where I would say, okay, when it comes to biology, mm. clearly that's male and femaleness is ontological. Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a I have a substantialist view of um, maleness and femaleness, which yeah. means I think it's tied to biology or it is manifest in biology. And so, in that sense, I would say if you just take the word psychologizing out of it, I would have to say that personal identity, at least in the human body, mm-hmm. is is related to our related yeah. to our sex, yeah. no question. But once you enter this idea, Rousseau. And the previous thinkers idea that now it's the psychologizing in other words your internal desires or your internal impulses Mm -hmm. now become and as we use the word an orientation yeah not just a description of your behavior yeah uh that's where it becomes problematic yeah um so then i was going to ask you and josh uh, he advocates here, he clearly is looking at Timothy, <laughs> right? Uh, mm-hmm. Paul's letter to Timothy, yeah. where Timothy advocates modesty, right? Modesty in dress, mm-hmm. modesty in the way we present ourselves. Yeah. What happened to old-fashioned mo- is just virginity and modesty, and um, is that just old-fashioned? Should we just throw that away in favor of this new and how do you yeah. handle that with youth like uh, here's the question i have yeah. for you how do we disciple youth yeah to think in terms of godly modesty and i don't just mean girls i mean boys yeah yeah, yeah i think it's hard because in some ways those conversations are already so informed by what they're feeling from the culture yeah. and informed by our age right so their understanding of modesty is something vastly different from women or, or boys you know right. 100 years ago right. completely different concepts of modesty. I think you're just trying to keep bringing it back to scripture and and it's a posture of the heart before God and and seeking to um, respect and honor what he says about our bodies. Uh, So yeah, I have had multiple conversations and it's nothing major in the sense that um, the dress in and of itself isn't super overt, but there've been conversations where, um, yeah, certain things aren't always the most modest. And so you try to help See the like in the midst of it, they're they're always frustrated. Sure, you know they're they're upset. I think Truman points out one of the the most sinister things about it is the discussion has changed. Yeah, from hey, what is the standard? Yeah, and to what degree can you show skin or cleave or or whatever? Yeah, to the standard there being a standard is evil. Yeah, yeah, 
there being a standard is oppressive. Any yeah. standard. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the shift is in the discussion has not gone from, hey, what is godly modesty? What yeah. is its modesty in itself yeah. is, a, is an oppressive force to your self-actualization. Right. And really, they don't realize it at times, but sometimes they're operating within this framework that we're reading about here where they're just saying, I'm doing this for me, or, you know, I'm just dressing how, what makes me feel comfortable. I'm not thinking about anything else. You know, I'm not trying to, um, but they don't realize that the very waters at the, at times they're swimming in is already so sexualized. Oh, I know. know. They're just drinking it in. So, but I mean, if you think of our culture, it's so sexualized. Yeah. I mean, there's no TV show. My wife and I were trying to watch that show, Ted Lasso. Hmm. And it's just, these characters are so quirky and so funny and so hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny, but it's so sexualized it? that it's almost—it's just impossible to watch. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, you think about just any anything uh, that you're exposed to, advertisements. Uh, you're sitting there flipping. My wife and my daughter were flipping through Facebook the other day, and they had these ads pop up that were, I mean, they were, you know, pornographic ads or anything, but they were just these sexualized things yeah. that came up and my wife was just like, delete, delete, delete. Yeah. And you wonder, man, where can, how can, I mean, obviously we can't isolate from it. Yeah. Yeah. How can a young man guard his way? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Josh, what is your, what's yeah. your experience with this been? Um, discussions over modesty and, and um, how it relates both to, to male and femaleness. Um, yeah, it's just been, it's been really, really interesting to, um, talk with people. I think, um, most of my friend group in high school, um, and I think like, like thankfully, like a lot of our, um, the kids here and my peers here at Christ community, um, have very, very similar views to me and like the biblical views, um, on like what modesty, um, and what sexuality is. So I've been grateful for that, but, um, noticeably definitely on social media, it's like, like even even the ads nowadays are sexualized. Like you you just can't escape it. It doesn't matter like how well you filter your content or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. find myself like continually. Um, I've I've had social media gone for years. Um, just because it's an unnecessary temptation for me. Sure. And yeah. you just can't avoid anything. Mm-hmm. But um, man. something that Ryan was saying, just like grounding kids in biblical truth. There's even now in social media like kind of this uprising of like. Um, there's like a, a guy named Andrew Tate and like some other social figures that are like kind of pioneering this movement, but they're like yeah. promoting masculinity and actually um, withholding from having sex, Yeah. Um, which is a good thing in and of itself, but kids are following it because it's popular and not because it's grounded in truth. Yeah. And so it'll right. ultimately be temporary. Yeah. So we have to mm-hmm. always be pointing to the authority. <clears throat> but doesn't the rise of people like Andrew Tate yeah. kind of point to that this is not ultimately satisfying yeah. yeah there's a there's a bitterness and pe- and an ashy taste to this that people are looking for something yeah. different for sure yeah. Yeah. if it was satisfying you know they would remain where they were um exactly and none this, of us in this are, sexual revolution but it's always going to be shifting well, that, that by the way none of us are advocating for andrew Tate. No. yeah <laughs> no, he's something needs up. to be satisfied in the human being which is why freud i think looks at sexuality because it's so intimate it's personal therefore it's the deepest that must articulate who I am, but I think foundational under that is the soul craves an explanation for its existence, but it also craves a description for its purpose. And so if that's most core, most center to me, that must be where it is. I think that's how Freud got to this conclusion. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I wrote in my notes here uh, as I was reading, 
this is what you would come up with if you just had no concept of the Imago Dei. Yeah. Right? If you just didn't understand a human being is made in the image of God and fallen into sin, yeah. that you would contrive something right. like this. That you would yeah. think, look, uh, sexual the... desire is real. It's palpable. It's visceral. It is. So everything's got to be rooted in that. Yeah. And then, you know, then you add to that the fact that Freud is coming up in a German and uh, really European uh, competition for the next big theory. Mm-hmm. Like that whole yeah. system of psychologizing and academic research is obsessed with finding the new theory. Yeah. Yeah. Science still is. Yeah, so, yeah this you is know. one of the things that I think Truman has missed discussing in this, is Darwinian evolution really does also uh, reduce all human relationship down to the sexual relationship yeah. about passing your genes on mm-hmm. maximizing your potential mm-hmm. for, right. for, you know, procreation yeah. with a, with a desirable mate. Right. And this, the rise of and evolution. And of course that is grounded in Genesis, like our vocation. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong about that insight in the sense that yeah, that's genetic. Oh, oh no. I, yeah, 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 I'm yeah. Not, I'm not. It's just, he doesn't have a higher order. Well, explanation. Excoriated and we are reduced, and we aren't reduced to that. That is part yes, of our vocation. That's right. And what, and everything gets boiled down to: Hey, all these human interactions can be, uh, can ultimately be brought back to. You're doing this because yeah. you think it's gonna, it's gonna in, enhance your ability mm-hmm. to pass your mm-hmm. genes on, which, you know, was rising. The 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 consequence of, of Darwinian evolution was was growing. Um, alongside all of these as well and informing this as well. And I don't think Truman touches on that uh, much at all. Yeah, I mean, he touches on Nietzsche. So Nietzsche kills God. And so any transcendent objectivity is gone, which is why then Freud has to look at just urges. Right. And that's how we picked up on this. So what I was profound for me in, in falling out of that is the more personal something is, the more foundational it must be for the human being's existence. So in order for my happiness to be actualized and for people to truly know me, I must proclaim and protect who I am and what is most intimate to me. Hmm. So without any view of an external, that's what I have to come up on my own. That's what we have to link into. Great point. I, I wanted to lead into the conversation with this, but you guys have already gotten there. Uh, one of the, He says <clears throat> on page 71... He says, one of the most obvious aspects of modern public life is the central role that sex plays within it. This should strike us as rather odd. The fact that the most private and intimate act, (laughs) which is what Pat was just talking about, the most private and intimate act between two people has become so important to public life is surely a strange development. How odd it is that the most private thing about your life Mm. has now become the most central factor in identifying who you are and determining what tribe or what group you belong in politically. So speak to that a little bit. I mean, is this, uh, is this the reason why the Christian sees all of this kind of playing out in media and, is, and just chafes against this? Uh, just, it feels offensive. Well, I think the Christian us. asks why. Why is it center stage? Why is it the battleground? And obviously we're getting there. That's yes, why he wrote of course. this book. Uh, but we see it primarily as private, as personal, as something that is um, sacred. Yes. And it's not in the world. It's 
sex is not sacred in the sense of Good union. Point. Sex is sacred in proclaiming and protecting who I am. That's describe. that's a great point. That this the sacred <clears throat> has become profane in that the sacred <clears throat> is being used now for a a very unholy mm-hmm. uh, purpose yeah. Yeah. of driving political ideology and driving yeah. people into your camp yeah. uh, politically. And so that this is nothing new with our culture. This has been going on mm-hmm. since, he yeah. points this out, it's been going on since, you know, Menelaus and the Peloponnesian War and uh, and yeah. uh, Henry Eighth and all the rest. I mean, yeah. it's been going on for a very long time. Yeah. People have been using sex to weaponize it uh, in political contests, but it's taking on a, a very unique, he says, a very unique shape in our culture, mm. and that is the sense that it's taking on, it's been fused with this sort of Marxist idea and William Reich's notion of just the um, the unfettered expression of one's sexual identity, so long as it's not a 15-year-old with a 3-year-old. That's where he draws the line. Yeah. We'll get to that arbitrary. I want to dive into it. <laughs> yeah, all, okay. But... D- don't let me forget. Yeah. Okay, so um, he says on ver- uh, pages 75 to 76, he says, A man might object to using his girlfriend's toothbrush ostensibly on grounds of hygiene, but he will rather enjoy giving her a passionate kiss that involves that same uh, compromise of his personal cleanliness. And so Freud argues morality is really just a matter of cultural tastes. In this, we might see him as standing in line with Nietzsche and Wilde, mm-hmm. uh, who also saw ethical claims as actually just aesthetic statements dressed up in the language of objective morality. So this idea is you would never share your toothbrush. This is Freud's example. You would never share your toothbrush with your wife. At least I hope you wouldn't. Um, but you'll share a passionate kiss with her, mm-hmm. and there just is no <laughs> difference in terms of... Uh, the, in terms of the actual function of that. But of course, that's nonsense. But, but then the question is, why is our culture today so obsessed with matters pertaining to sex and sexual orientation when such things were considered private and personal by, by previous generations? And should they have been considered private and personal? Um, and do we want to go back to the Victorian age? I was going to say, some of this is coming out of Victor- the Victorian era where there was a, I don't want to say a prudishness about sex, yeah. but there was a, I think they went too far the other direction. Hmm. Um, so I know some of it is a revolt against that, uh, just a right. consequence of that, but um, that concept that, that morality really is an issue of either disgust or enjoyment. Hmm. Um, yes. And yeah, that, my question was, is there a place, is there a place for disgust like is that uh, is that a fundamentally bad thing to be disgusted by something you know see a you know to to th- that you see or perceive or something that's going on is that a fundamentally bad were we created thing? to feel disgust in the same way were we, we yeah. to create, create were we created to feel guilt or something yeah, like that like, is that what, or is it idea? or is that just purely consequential of the fall that we have you know um, any kind of distaste for the the any anything in the creation i lean towards no but i have to think about why a little bit deeper yeah you're saying can you rephrase the question or just clarify for me 
Is disgust a God-given thing written into our into our uh, biology from the beginning, our our personhood from the beginning, or is it a consequence of the fall? Is it something that like, yeah, um, you know, we're fallen creatures, and so we feel disgust towards a person, or we feel disgust towards a, you yeah. know, a, that's a what we need as examples. Animal. Like, what 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 do you think a human being should be disgusted by, and I don't think seeing a naked body should should arouse disgust from an imager point of view. So from a Genesis one point of yeah. view, I don't think seeing a naked body should uh, should cause us to completely be revolted. I, it's beautiful. The human body is beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God made it, and uh, it's just that it's just that in sin it lost its glory. And I don't know exactly what is transacting there. Like, I don't know exactly what Genesis is pointing to there. If you guys have any theories, I'd be happy to hear, hear them out. But I think there's some, something about right away after they eat the fruit, right? The mm-hmm. pomegranate or whatever it was, their eyes are open, like the scales drop from their eyes, yeah. and they observe. And so there's a sexual shame there. <laughs> There's yeah. a shame over their sexuality that they immediately experience. Mm. What is going on there? So I think it's probably a result of the fall. But I would also mm-hmm. say in things that were, I, I think it is, I think a human being can have a very natural and godly disgust over sin. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, you see an image that pops up in one of your <clears throat> social media feeds that's inappropriate or, you know, someone doing something they shouldn't be doing. And to say that that's not godly, yeah. that's yeah. that is, I I don't know if I would call it disgust. I would call it a conscience, hmm. and I think that's that's essentially. Ryan mentioned last week that in sin, our our consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Yeah, and hmm. so it's we're almost a shameless yeah. culture yeah. now. No, I I was when I was considering it. I think that there, I think I, I agree with what you guys are saying. Um, I think I think things that fall outside the natural order are intrinsically, yeah, disgusting to us. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. like, like death. There, there's a, yeah. like yeah, or or when you see some of these like horror like horror depictions where they've <laughs> stitched an animal head onto a human body, or yeah. or or, or, or yeah. you know yeah. wearing a mask of a pig, or yeah, that's so outside the natural order. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know that that I don't think that I don't think that revulsion to that yeah is. I think that I think that part yeah. of it is 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 part of our hardwiring. So whether it is yes, but I feel I like it's part of what Freud is, yeah. what Freud is saying here is that disgust is a bad thing. Yeah, hmm. I, yeah, the very fact that we have disgust, yeah, yeah because over those and things. then it, and yeah. then morality yeah. codifies around that disgust. You know, and, yeah, and, but right. we would say like I, I agree. I think I would tie it back to the fall. But I think there is something in creator order. But just the, the disgust comes in the presence of sin. You know, like right. we're recognizing that something yeah. is is wrong here. But yeah, you're right. Freud would just say the fact that you have that disgust shows that there's some other thing that's mm-hmm. influencing you, and and that's the thing that needs to be torn down. And that's where Reich builds off. Yeah, but, totally. Yeah. I feel like Freud just needed to read this the Song of Solomon, mm-hmm. right, to understand that human sexuality, from God's perspective, is beautiful and wonderful. Yeah, it's truly lovely. It, mm-hmm. So long as it is within the confines of His created order yeah. mm-hmm. of relationships. It's beautiful, and it's lovely, and it's wonderful. And, by the way, for those of you who do not know this, 
<clears throat> people have been who've been married long-term heterosexual monogamous relationships who work on their relationships <clears throat> can have a deeper stronger romantic love for each other than than anyone can i mean there's yeah. a there's a love there that is hard for me to explain as a guy who's been married 30 years um to people who just know infatuation. So in, I would say the Song of Solomon, it kind of puts sex into its theological sure. context. Yeah. Using well, Freud's language, though, you would say you have a deeper happiness. We know it's more than just yes. happiness. Right. But Freud's language is a normative, heterosexual, monogamous relationship. There's a deeper, truer happiness in that. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. God has decreed. Yeah. But he a, would say that that's fundamentally designed it to, in order for us to have civilized right. relationships. Right, that's a, that's a trade-off for security. That's what we'll talk about. I think that's where he goes into yeah, yeah, it. Because yeah. mm-hmm. in the yeah. Song yeah. of Solomon, there's security. definitely a delight in sexual act. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's a delight in the other the other sure. person's soul. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, there's, right. A, there's a connectedness of soul, mm-hmm. not just a connectedness yeah. of body. Mm-hmm. That's why, I mean, the Bible doesn't isn't just using to know your wife as a euphemism, yeah. but also as a deep, <laughs> intimate act that... Sex is meant to be within the confines of marriage, and it is knowing an individual, body and soul, yeah. in that moment. And so, I mean, we're true freedom is found in the natural boundaries and limitations that God has set up for us. Great way he, to put that it. He put in Genesis. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, we have we actually experience greater freedom. Yeah, to stay within greater the pleasure. Content, contents. You know, when you're raising little kids, mm-hmm. you know, you don't put parameters or rules into their life. To just limit their freedom and be a mean old parent, you do it because you love them. You don't want them running out into the road. You don't right. want them uh, unnecessarily becoming hurt. You put those mm. those boundaries in there uh, to maximize their experience of freedom and pleasure, mm. not uh, to to punish them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why the law is given. Mm. Um, so I guess my second question was, given that the Bible has a place for the sexual and the erotic how might Christians preserve this emphasis while still maintaining appropriate notions of privacy and modesty? So what's the balance here for the Christian? I mean, you're, we're trying to tell young people, old people alike, listen, have a godly view of sexuality, have a, have a biblical view of mm-hmm. the purpose of sexuality, because it maximizes pleasure, it maximizes human freedom. But at the same time, we want to say this should not be central to who you are and your identity as a Christian, mm-hmm. uh, and and should be mm-hmm. be your organizing mm-hmm. principle in terms of politics or anything else. Mm-hmm. So, what's the balance? How do we strike the right balance? You saying within the church community? And yeah, because I've been a part of churches where um, you know you've never heard me do any sermon series on the Song of Solomon, <laughs> and you never will. <laughs> um, I I'm not going to do that. Um, so, but uh, I come from a church background where <clears throat> pastors, in their eff- in an effort to kind of reach the seeker, or in, in their effort to kind of reach the unchurched person, and just show them, prove to them that the gospel's relevant. You know, mm-hmm. the Bible's relevant to their desires or their needs or whatever. They would do these tawdry, horrible mm-hmm. series through mm-hmm. the Song of Solomon that were very sexualized and very embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And I would come out of church going, "Am I?" Honestly, am I that much of a prude? I remember my friend telling me, dude, you're a prude. And I'm like, I don't think I'm that buttoned up. I don't think I'm that much of a Puritan or that much of a Victorian 
uh, era Christian, I think I'm, I think I have a, a healthy view of biblical sex. I, I don't disagree that the Song of Solomon is there for that purpose. I don't think it is a metaphor between Israel and God's relationship, by the way. Some scholars think it's that. I think it really is the passionate heart cry of the individual for a woman that he loves, mm, yes. uh, through and through, like you say, through and through. So, but the idea that we mm. would just be doing these long series on yeah. how to have, you know, and then calling them how to have the best sex, yeah. I just mm. find that to be... I, I, but but yet, as pastors, we we have to teach people yeah, what the I, Bible says I, about sex, and I, it's I, not all yeah, prohibitive. I, I yeah. do think that that's, that is unbiblical, because if you look at all the biblical language around sex, mm-hmm. it is mysterious and guarding it and keeping the the explicit detail of it like off the table and right. out of yes. the post. Yes. And so when you take a thing like Song of Solomon, which is incredibly filled with incredible <laughs> metaphors and symbolism and all that stuff, and go, here's the blunt, explicit, this is what this means, and this yeah. act, and right? You're literally doing something unbiblical. Mm-hmm. It's a, it, it, it's not in the in the it's not addressing sex the way that the I think, Bible. I think I know sex. what you mean by that, and I would just say, instead of having a Christocentric view of the Bible. That is to say, to see every book from Genesis to Revelation through the lenses of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. S- some churches have developed a kind of Song of Solomon-centric <laughs> view of the Bible where mm. they, they, in an effort to want to show the relevance of the gospel, they replace the gospel with this sort of explicit uh, exposition on how to have a great sex life. I think life. you guys are describing it... Uh, I would give the other component. We're to be specific and not explicit. Mm. So if we don't talk about it at all, if we're not specific on the nature of sex in the Christian's life and the human being's life, the world is going to teach our people. For sure. So then you get oh, wrong yeah. impressions of what sex is, that men should have this ferocious sex drive and women should be saying no. Well, that, that's not true across the board. That's a caricature. Yeah, that, that's So right. we should look mm-hmm. at the specifics of what Scripture talks well, about and, I, and then be bold enough to talk about them. I and I would say that the sure. church, the church uh, in a lot of the teachings that I've heard, embraces the world's view of what is going to be ultimately satisfying <laughs> yeah. in your marriage is a mind-blowing yeah. sex life. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they preach towards that and they... And you're like, wait, sex is is way t- is, is way too wonderful to define your entire marriage by, yeah. oh, and man. marriage is way too wonderful to be limited to your you mm-hmm. know to your sexuality. But mm-hmm. we we adopt the same language, the same attitude, the right. same end goal yeah. that the world has, trying to be relevant, trying to say, oh no no, we've got it better, and and mm-hmm. wind up just feeding the very thing right. that like mm-hmm. it, that people are are already struggling with. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. And, and, and I do think in premarital counseling and biblical counseling and in a lot of the uh, discipleship uh, training that we do, we can and should address, and we should Absolutely. always address what the Bible says. I will have to say, though, I was kind of looking at all the passages in Romans over this last weekend, because Paul mentioned it again. He mentioned sexual promiscuity again. Um, and I was kind of looking at all of it. It, it generally is negative, and, and negative in the sense that it generally d- the instruction comes across as prohibitions uh, until you get to First Corinthians, uh, where chapters seven, eight, and so forth. He begins to give them very specific instructions toward um, marrying your virgin 
and uh, staying single if you can, at least in this current climate of sexual, mm-hmm. uh, outrageous sexual culture in Corinth, and uh, staying with your spouse. I mean, he does give very specific instructions. They're not all prohibitive. They're actually very, very positive. Mm. But other than that, we just don't see... A, we really have a lot of prohibitions in the Bible against sexual promiscuity. Mm-hmm. And I defined that yesterday in a way that the a, Jew, a good Jewish rabbi like Jesus or Paul would do, which is sexual promiscuity is any sexually deviant behavior mm-hmm. outside of a heterosexual monogamous relationship. Both Jesus and Paul would affirm that. That's a very Jewish view. Yeah. So... Anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if there's a question in there. I'm just saying, is is there a way we can extrapolate from the Scriptures? Okay, here's the question. I thought of a good one. Um, how to positively instruct people on this? Because I know how I do it when I'm doing premarital counseling with a couple that's getting married hmm. without abandoning the kind of relentless prohibitions against promiscuity in the New Testament. Does that make yeah. sense? Or did yeah. I just mess that up? How do you not, how do you not equate sexuality bad? You know, when yeah. you read through yeah. Romans, how do you not go, oh, this is all bad? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Right, right. I think a lot of it has to, co- like, comes down to disordered desire, you know? Yeah. Um, Misplaced. You look at Romans, what, you know, Romans 1, where it talks about uh, the progression into this sort of worthless, mindless, yeah. you know, evil. Um, it goes through the, hey, you're given over to your desire. And here's Freud saying, Get, be given over to your desire. Like yeah. that is the, right. that is the, you know, the way that you achieve happiness. Right. And so, um, and, and that's a tough conversation about, about are desires innately sinful or is acting on a desire innately sinful? Like what's the, like what, mm. you know, there's a there's a, a conversation around that, but I don't know if I think I may have just steered our conversation away from the question you were asking. Yeah, I think I think That's James's right. That's statement right. earlier concerning there's blessing <clears throat> in uh, God given natural yeah. rules, boundaries, orders, whatever you want to call them, and we have that conversation concerning sexuality and show the blessing of it yeah. as God intended, how He uh, speaks about it in Scripture. Like all of those things are more than a positive image and are able to instruct. Um, and at the same time, we uh, we talk about exactly how you defined sexual promiscuity and what the scriptures right. say concerning that. And then um, I think the Lord gives wisdom and and how to um, operate, you know, yeah. within those and, and understand the negative and the positive. So I think what breaks mm. up marriages is this idea he mentions on page seventy two, the notion that sex is foundational to human happiness. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. is central to Freud's thinking. Now think about a person who is bought into that system, mm-hmm. right? So he asked the question, how is Freud's message communicated today? Can you think of movies, books, TV programs, or commercials that press this view on the public? If, if it's true that my, my happiness, my greatest, in fact, my, my deepest sense of happiness is in the expression of my Se- sexual desire, mm-hmm. then then the question becomes, how is the culture then just reinforcing mm-hmm. and feeding this? And so the question, can you think of movies, books, TV programs, commercials? <laughs> I can't think of any. Can you think of any that don't? <laughs> mm. 
That was, yeah. I thought that was an odd question. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think it begins with being able to empower or encourage believers that this is a discussable topic. Yeah. It's yeah. not uh, out of bounds. Right. Mm-hmm. That within the context of community groups or even classes for that matter, where you're not going to throw your pearls before swine. No, yeah. Swine being people that don't know how to handle it. But I think it's a fair game. I think we should discuss it because... Mm-hmm. How many Christians, how many of you grew up in, in the church world where it, sex wasn't talked about? You got married, and then it was like, hmm, this is hard. This I wish work. I had a mentor. I wish I, I had too. someone I could yeah. honestly talk to. It took me yeah. five, six years into yeah, marriage man. for someone to finally willing to talk about what it. Is the, yeah, yeah. What is the obligation of an old, you know, you see in Titus 2, older women are supposed yeah. to be instructing younger women. Eld, you know, there's implications all throughout. Your fathers are supposed to be, you know. Older yeah. teaching younger, mm-hmm. does that translate to couples too? Are couples supposed to be? I think that's wise. Helping to, yeah. to mm-hmm. disciple, um, probably you know, couples in this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. Uh, that's a great point. I think we do have a responsibility to mentor one another. It requires openness, um, but you'll find a lot of people across a good cross section of people in the church. Based on cultural expectations or cultural pressure, they have experienced some disappointment in this area. Uh, and so they may have a very hard time actually mentoring someone else, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so this is hard. This is sure. this is a very difficult There's thing. There's some rust yeah. people need to break. There's yeah. some cultural rust within inside the church that needs broken, and it can yeah. be shame that built it up or one way or another. Yeah, because yeah, right. yeah, I think the church responded to this sexualization of culture and politicizing of sex by just being like, oh, yeah, yeah I'm just not going to talk about it, which isn't helpful, right? Yeah. And I think in Freud's... Yeah. His view that the end of sex is my personal pleasure, and that's the highest goal of humanity. In that, we see our response as pastors, as Christians, and how we address this as a church is that the purpose of sex is pleasureful procreation. Procreation, yeah. Between two covenant partners. Yep. And therefore, it's not about my pleasure, mm-hmm. it's about our pleasure. Yeah. And it's about, Lord willing, by His sovereign plan, bringing life into the world to make disciples of yeah. those children. Think of how contrary a picture that is. Wow, yeah. yeah. To what, what society... The picture you just painted. Mm-hmm. Literally, sex is... Not to get too Catholic here, but <laughs> sex is divorced. Like, the, the good of sex is... Good sex is divorced from the procreative reality right. of it. Like it's At the, all costs. At all costs, yeah, mm-hmm. like, yeah. I mean, even if it's the, the slaughter yeah. of a child, yeah. um, mm-hmm. it's to... It's, Exactly opposite to what you just mm-hmm. presented. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And when it, Sorry. so here's a great resource for you guys. Mm-hmm. There's a sermon called Ten Shekels in a Shirt" by a guy named Paris Reedhead. I suggest everybody listening go out and, really uh, and listen to that. And uh, there's a line that he has in that that what James was saying reminds me of. Um, and he asks the question: Does the Lord intend the happiness of humanity? Mm-hmm. And he says, "Sure." But as a byproduct, yeah. and not as the prime product. Yeah. Hmm. It's the byproduct of obedience and holiness, not the prime. Pro- it's not his end result is for us hmm. to be conformed to the image of Jesus, which is our ultimate, which will be our ultimate happiness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. not happiness itself. Sounds hmm. like Christian hedonism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just wanted to point That's out right. on uh, seventy-seven if we can go to where yes. this where this where this goes naturally, and where Freud. I think ultimately wanted to take it, you know, he, um, 
mentions at the bottom of 76, society has a vested interest in cultivating powerful moral instincts within us such that we feel deep shame and guilt if we go against them because, as he says, we're trying to preserve civilization. And then Freud expresses the problem. Primitive man was better off in knowing no restrictions of instinct to counterbalance this. His prospects of enjoying this happiness for any length of time were very slender. Civilized man has exchanged a portion of his possibilities of happiness for a portion of security. So basically what you're saying earlier, Trade off. act on any behavior you want, uh, and when you don't, you're just trying to uphold society or a civilized civilization. You're trading right? it for some personal yeah. security that you And then look do. where Truman says in the middle of the next paragraph, but what if Freud is right? What if the inner voice of nature is not one that leads to empathy for other human beings, but is rather a powerful sex drive that seeks sexual gratification? If that is the case, then allowing that inner voice to find outward expression will lead to a very different scenario, the one that is dark and violent. In short, such a world would be one of social chaos, dominated by the most physically powerful males, for whom everybody else will simply be an instrumental object for the achievement of sexual pleasure. So it's many ways the culture does not realize the water that they have jumped in willy-nilly and are swimming in, mm-hmm. and this is where it naturally takes us. Pop, pop, pop. Oh, Sorry. yeah, yeah. The, the <laughs> consequences of logically following this out are crazy, but yeah. here's what I want to say. I, I highlighted that same paragraph because yeah. I thought that was... First of all, me too. <laughs> his 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 question here: What if what if Freud is right? Freud is not right. He's wrong. <laughs> I know yeah. because human civilization exists in the family unit. Yeah. You can't have a human being yeah. without the family unit. That's how human beings are made. And his whole presupposition here, which is, you know, that primitive man was out there wildly acting like an ape. I know. Is actually factually wrong. Yeah. Uh, apes in the wild have very structured social har- hierarchies, mm. and those hierarchies are maintained by a system of altruism, mm. <laughs> social yeah. altruism. Yeah. So, in a sense, you find this very primitive socialness yeah. or sociability, even among primates. He just is factually yeah. wrong. Mm. Human beings, his civilization is not antithetical to our sexual pleasure mm. or our sexual happiness yeah. or fulfillment. He just is wrong. Yeah. And if he were right, I would say, you know, this is counterfactual, but if he were if it were to be the case that he were right, we would look worse than animality. Yeah. Yeah. The human species there not only would we not have civilization within the family unit. Yeah. We would look worse than the worst primates. Sure. Yeah. We would have killed each other off. Right? Yeah, sure. totally. Yeah. It's so, interesting that the progression of the book and the thinking has gone from the, delig- the, the delegitimizing of the man of humanity in the Imago Dei. Yeah. Right, right. And now, what's the next step? The delegitimizing of the family. Yeah. You go to Genesis, you have the creation of yeah. the man in the image right. of God, right. the creation of the woman into yeah. the family yeah. and it's family. it's just an assault against yeah genesis i wonder Boy, if next you're right is basically about that. where he naturally has to go is an assault on the fall there is no sin there's no, we've already seen exactly it right there's no morality yeah. right yes. there's no external morality so sin is doesn't exist yeah you know? yeah for the, to them that's just a fairy tale but then their explanation for how we have gotten where we are it's just not very intellectually satisfac- satisfactory mm. it's uh it's spiritually socially and uh, personally, just intellectually, just not a very satisfactory uh, answer. Um, he mentions that F- Freud believes seventy-seven, seventy-eight. So to kind of pick up on that, society engages in a trade-off. So go, go into what uh, Ryan just said there. It places restrictions on sexual desire through cultivating morality. 
a code of behavior by which guilt and shame about certain sexual behaviors are internalized, and by so doing, this allows human beings to live together in some kind of social arrangement. This is what Freud calls civilization, but what we call culture. Um, Sexual instincts are curbed, thwarted, and redirected so that men and women can live together with some degree of security. That just is a denial of the fall. Hmm. That just is a denial of what you were saying, Ryan, of uh, the sexual aggression, the sexual deviance, uh, or desires that are deviant from our nature, natural law. That just is to to deny uh, the fall of man, to say that there is no fall of man. We just yeah. evolved these sensibilities. It's through the herd. Um, but then again, I want to ask this question. Is there anything that's right about this? Are there any trade-offs? Are there any... I was going to ask the same question. For the, for the benefit of civilization? Yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. T- tell us what they, what they would be. Is there just a kernel of truth here that put in a biblical context might be... Dude, I think, I think the, the concept of sacrifice for the betterment of the beloved is, is yeah. I mean, that's all throughout scripture yeah. and uh, it's a, it's a noble concept of the man does what he gives himself up, mm. you know? Um, so there, and again, these are, are, these are you are, seeing that in Freud though? Well, yeah. So he's, he's, he's doing it in the, in a societal structure where, okay, you're giving up your carnal, some of your carnal lusts yeah. in order to have a society that preserves, you know, some social cohesion, yeah. uh, you know, the ability to, to have economies. Like yeah. he's saying that, you know, that, that there's the trade off though, but ultimately you're sacrificing your, your sexual gratification. Um, and there's a reality to that from, yeah. I mean, even the picture of marriage of when I take the vow to forsake all other women, yeah, I'm forsaking delight in all other women. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There is an element of, of, okay, I, I had, some potential for multiple, you know, yeah. for, for, you know, maybe multiple options of people to marry or, or, or whatever. Um, and I am now, those are entirely off the table. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I think they're, but again, you're taking the, you're taking the, the, uh, uh, facet of truth and blowing it out and making it the entirety of it. Yeah. But I was and, reading Freud as wanting, even arguing that we should be getting rid of any of those societal inhibitions, right? Like, or is I reading him wrong? Maybe I think it, what what Freud is trying to the say necessary is evil to Freud. Yeah. The, the, just a, this is the explanation. Yeah. I don't think he's necessarily he's this not is arguing, what ought to get, be. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, I think he's getting there, but he's just trying to say this is what's driving us. Gotcha. What what is driving us essentially is from childhood, from yeah. birth, actually. Yeah. This sexual angst. Yeah. And, and so the, the natu- human natural being next is, step, what we'll get to is. You have to tear that down. You have to tear yeah, that down. Reich, society right? can't do anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah Wilhelm Reich yeah. is the one who then says, gotcha. no, "No, let's get rid of it all." No nuclear family, and that's why yeah. him and Freud didn't get along because gotcha. Freud thought he was too extreme. Yep. Right? Yeah. At least yeah. that's what. Yeah, I think you're right Truman's about that. Says, yeah, yeah. Will I think a biblical example of what you're talking Reich. about, the trade-off, <laughs> is the church. So mm. my concern as a member of the body of Christ is not my own advancement, own happiness, own joy, is to serve others. But in turn, I have mm. a whole body of people who are of care and concern for my well-being, my protection, my mm. happiness, yeah. my security. Yeah. So it's a complete emptying of myself, but then I have, well, just the, the five of you emptying into me, and then vice versa, or the rest yeah, of the yeah, people too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a trade-off. There, there are trade-offs, sure. Mm. Sure, yeah. I mean, mm. 
I, I guess I read that question or I read that idea here, any legitimacy of it. I'm thinking along the lines of what you just said, but also what Daniel said. Um, I, I, I think there are, my wife and I are not as intimate in public as we are in private. And it's because we want to maintain the social order and not just freak everybody out. We have all these little cutesy names for each other. I'm probably really embarrassing her right now. But <laughs> I, my favorite thing to do is just make nicknames up for everyone. And my teenagers hate them and my adult, adult children hate them. But that's just one of the fun things I do. It's one of the mm. ways in which I'm playful mm. at home. It's one of the ways I communicate accessibility. I have nicknames for all of you. No, I'm Great. just joking. I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> But I'm just saying there are there there's a trade-off there. In public, I want to be there is a public persona that for for okay. the the good of civilization, even church civilization, that mm. I that I'm trading off. I I have plenty of time and space in my life to be intimate with my wife, um, and so I guess I, I'm saying there uh, once again, Freud is seeing something that's that for sure is true. I mean, there is a trade-off for the purpose of kind of social, civilizing social interaction. Yeah. But he's missing the theological context. There just, it, for him, is no theological context yeah. because he's an atheist mm -hmm. and a neo-Darwinist. And I think, I think Ryan's right in that he thinks that that is ultimately not ideal, however it's right. necessary evil, yeah. where we would see that as, you know, if the... Yeah. Good if, point. If John 14 talks about you know, equates the the highest act of love hmm. with being the sac like the, the sacrifice yeah. of yes. life. There's a there's something virtuous about that yeah. in in <laughs> the Christian worldview, where I think I think Freud doesn't see it as virtuous. He yeah. sees it as necessary. Yeah. I, I think you're right. He sees it as a necessary evil, but the operative word there is evil. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and where did he get that notion from? Um, what? Let me ask you this question. Satan? Turning to the text now. <laughs> uh, why would God ban adultery in the Ten Commandments in Exodus twenty fourteen? Why is adultery wrong? Why is it bad? Why is it bad for humanity? Because in the created order, we were created to be male and female and have one. We were supposed to forsake. The man is supposed to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So marriage is built into the cake of creation, and it's a good thing. And therefore, the Ten Commandments are a prohibition of breaking that. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so Jesus cites that very reason now, mm -hmm. right? In the New Testament, Jesus says, you know, have you read in the beginning? They were one for life, yeah. Right? Yeah. right? But then how does humanity get out of the garden? I mean, obviously, uh, the first human beings had to have multiple sexual partners in order to see the human race uh, expand out of the garden, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, if you hold to the theory that uh, the original pair is the progenitor of all the rest, mm -hmm. so why did God allow for, let's say, polygamous relationships— <laughs> In order to, um, is this going? This is a landmine. You're setting landmines for a tripwire. Uh, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> That's an important question. It is an important question. I would like to hear your answers, though, because if if God designed humanity uh, to diversify, 
in terms of, <laughs> uh, if I may use those terms, in order to in order to procreate or see the the human race um, prosper and fulfill and multiply the earth, then clearly from the Genesis story, uh, he had to have he had to have allowed humanity at least for a season to be polyamorous or poly. Gynus. Josh. <laughs> <laughs> What's your explanation of that? I'm not sure I've ever thought about it like that. You're saying that Adam and Eve's sons and daughters. Yeah. They had to have multiple. Well, how do you? Uh, yes. I just if we're all assumed. related to Adam and Eve, you, mm-hmm. you assume there were other people outside of the garden. No, I don't. That they intermarried with. Mm-hmm. I think they... From and I base that on the story of Cain, brothers and sisters, Cain who was kicked out, yeah, and went to the land of Nod and found a wife. Where did he yeah. get that wife? Where'd she come from? If she came from yeah. Adam, how'd she get there? Yeah. I have not thought about this recently. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy there I've are, got you guys. So, well, so there's this is, yeah, this is a whole there's thing. elements to this we don't have, or there's variables. <laughs> excuse me, yeah. we don't have answers for. We don't have time in that story of how long things actually were. We don't know mm-hmm. how many kids. We know a few kids he has. We don't know how many kids Adam and Eve actually Sure, that's, that's fair. So there's a lot of variables you can begin to open up and that create an explanation, but at the end of the day, you have to hold it with an open hand. Well, yeah. And, so, and but then, the question you're asking is, did God allow it? Did God promote yes. it? Well, those are two different things in my mind. Okay, it, let, oh, let's mm-hmm. just say that the standard story is true and that the woman, the, the tribe that... Cain found in the land of Nod descended from Adam and Eve too. Let's mm-hmm. just say they're but but they would be all Cain's brothers and sisters mm-hmm. maybe nieces and nephews I mean sure. if they all came from an original two pair yeah. mm-hmm. then obviously God has wired into the human race a kind of uh, uh, <laughs> a desire to, to have multiple partners you, you, it would have to be there, right? I'm not sure I'd, I agree with that. Yeah, We see that in the wild. Yeah, I don't, I don't see that as, a, as a necessarily following. Um, yeah, the, the... You got something to say? See no, I face. was just going to say, so, oh. Jeff, you would see... Uh, thou shalt not commit adultery then is a restraining of the natural impulse of man before the fall? Maybe so. Hmm. I just don't know how we get the rest of the human race if Cain doesn't marry his sister that. and maybe his... I think Wait, are you talking about are you talking about polyamory or are you talking about... Uh, uh, Both. Yeah, uh, and what right? I'm reading in Incest. this here is like the Lord and he's <clears throat> settled in the land of Nod east of Eden, right? And then it just says Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore. It doesn't really say that she came from Nod. They, he settled in Nod. Y- yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. So I, I was just thinking that was his clear influence. I think seems to be his sister. They oh, had okay. other sons yeah, and daughters. That's fine. And that's what I think happened early on. And then eventually it spread out from and there. The, and, uh, well. But I'm saying they're intermarrying. It's the same family. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yes. Correct. That's what I, I yeah, agree. That's not yeah. a good debate. <laughs> Sorry to bring this uncomfortable thing up. <laughs> no, I agree but with on that. But on well, you, you, you have so many landmines here. Well, <laughs> did God create other human beings and set them over here? <laughs> yeah. And then there's the other landmine of, can you have more than one wife? And there's, is that a desire that's innate yeah. I bring this creation. up because so scholars... Like a couple things here. Scholars debate this all the time. Scholars that Jeff reads. Well, they do. The Old Testament scholars, they do debate this quite a bit. And I bring this up because I think that so much is... 
this is where I'm trying to get to. So much is based on God's decree, God's law. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In other words, when we look at Exodus 20:14, that's a law. God gives the law, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and God writes the moral law in the heart of the image-bearing person, mm-hmm. man or woman, man and woman. And so, so even if it was true that God allowed for those relationships, even if it were true that God allowed for those relationships for a season in order to procreate the human race and fill, yeah. fill the mm-hmm. earth, this is God's law. First of all, Jesus says Adam and Eve are the gold standard. Like, that's what human relationships are supposed to look like. Mm. One man, one woman for life, yeah. right? Okay. Um, and God's law is that human beings not uh, do that, yeah. <laughs> you know, not commit adultery. Um, and so that desire for us uh, to commit adultery, you know, to, to look on a woman who is not our wife with lust in our heart, um, is not God's desire. It is not his plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we are obligated to obey the law because we are not a law unto ourselves. And frankly, it does not desire, it, it does not matter what I desire. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Uh, this is where I'm getting okay. to. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I was like, I'm tracking with all this good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it doesn't matter what I want. Now, what I want might be perfectly in line with with what God wants for me, but, but it is only legitimate so long as it is within his moral law. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. uh, So do not commit adultery is a law. mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what I want and it's good for humanity. Now God has structured the human race so that we will not disobey this that is, command, or or we would hold ourselves div- to that command. This is divine, some some divine command theory of yeah, for sure. it is good because God declared yes. yeah. this to be the law. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I just want to say uh, two things in regard to see if I remember them both in regards to marriage. I think practically, um, in light of that, you know, I mentioned adultery. Why is that not good? I need to stop talking with my hands. Um, <laughs> Because I think all the study I was just talking about this in my parenting class, all the studies show that a monogamous relationship in which children are reared within that, having a mother and a father, mother and father not sleeping around with other people. Yeah, right. That is the best thing for a for them to grow up in. Great and right. Point. And that just extrapolates out for a society. So if our mandate is to fill and rule the earth, part of that filling is for it to be good and point back to the glory yeah, of yeah. God. Well, and so, the representative from South Dakota would say that that is a dangerous and un-American I idea. I, I wow. saw that as well. Wow. Um, I saw it as well. But then two, I also just wanted to speak at it, you know, theologically. Um, ultimately, we would see in scripture that marriage is pointing to something bigger than self, Christ and the church, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And that is a one-to-one commitment that is Great never point. to be broken. And so our marriages are yeah. to reflect that. Christ is not uh, forsaking his bride ever, right? And mm-hmm. so, Amen, um, man. So and he expects his bride to remain faithful to him. Totally true. Right? And so we should, yeah, Peering we should spotless. understand that that is something that is set in eternity past, and we are to that's great. model that in our marriages. Great answer. Mm-hmm. Awesome. <clears throat> Ephesians 5. That's where you can find that, folks. Okay. Awesome. Good answer. Uh, okay. Let's move along. Uh, let's talk about sex and politics. Sex and Yay. politics. Super fun. Um So he says on uh, page 79, the development of the idea that sex is central to politics was hardly surprising once the thinking of Freud took hold. If we are at root defined in large part by our sexual desires, 
if sexual desire or what we call now call orientation is who we are, then sex must be political because rules governing sexual behavior are rules that govern what is and what is not considered by society to be, to be legitimate as an identity. Mm-hmm. So it is inevitable now once this Freudian view takes hold, it's just inevitable for us to politicize it. Yeah. Like it's been yeah. psychologized and now it's been politicized. Um, and so now this brings us to the sexual revolution. He says on page 85, the sexual, sexual revolution did not redefine modesty. Daniel was mentioning this earlier. It's not fundamentally a redefinition of modesty. It overthrew it completely. Even to raise such questions as to the modesty of bikinis or skirt length or, or, or whatever. Um, I knew that wasn't my idea. Today will likely elicit at best laughter and at worst, some rebuke for daring to tell someone uh, how else how to dress. In short, the very concept of modesty is now concerned, considered to be repressive and o- an oppressive assault upon individual authenticity. So now that it's become politicized, we have a completely sexualized culture. The very idea of modesty or someone telling you, hey, man, that, you know, button your shirt up because... You know, you're showing too much chest hair, and it's, you know. <laughs> Sebastian. Or, or whatever. <laughs> or dudes maybe don't walk around with your shirt off and your shorts hanging down. Yeah. Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and young females don't come to youth group or don't come to church with, you know, half shirts on mm. that show, you know, way, way too much of your midriff. I mean, mm. just the idea that we would prescribe some kind of moral code to another person to say, there's a modest standard here yeah. uh, in our culture today is just cultural heresy. Mm. It well, just and, is anathema. And it infiltrates the church, too. There's a lot of discussion for youth yeah. of like, hey, uh, summer camp, mm-hmm. what's appropriate dress and what's not? And you get all kinds of yeah. you know, pushback yeah. on that. How dare you? Yeah. It's not the you know it's not a woman's obligation to remain covered. It's a man's obligation not to look. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, or is it a woman's obligation? Like, there's all this discussion mm-hmm. that goes around it that yeah. is rooted yeah. in this, not in the scriptures. Yeah, not in the word. Or uh, I think of a good example of this is when we went to part of our order last year, and we had that beach day. It was wonderful. It was an absolutely wonderful day. But I thought, man, all of our kids were amazing. Like, they just, they were wearing, they took instruction very well, mm-hmm. boys and girls. They were all very modest. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're yeah. all at the beach. We're swimming at the beach all day. And it's just, I just thought, that's what it's supposed to look like right mm-hmm. there. No, there's nothing, awesome. nothing yeah. offensive here. Uh, the kids are just playing. They're playing yeah. volleyball. They're playing, you know, spike ball. games, yeah. spike ball. And just having fun, and that to me, it just it just looked like heaven. It was just wonderful, mm-hmm. pure and innocent. And it's because Ryan worked so hard uh, to try to help them to understand. Hey, listen, when we're in these moments together, which we will be, uh, you know, you need to be dressing modestly, mm-hmm. not in a way that's provocative, but in a way that's here for the team. Yeah. You know, for our goal, for our yeah. purpose. It was great. Yeah. Um, okay, so your thoughts on any of those ideas, sex and politics. Sexual revolution. Yeah, I, I think the only thing I was just going to say is we were talking a little bit earlier about how things that more were in Truman was mentioning things that are, would be you know sexual activity, things that would be intimate, more behind closed doors, right? 
if that is getting brought out, this is where I, it was just helpful for me to think out loud. If that is getting brought out and no longer to be behind closed doors, um, then the pushback will be like uh, Freud and Reich were saying that society will start to say, no, you can't do that, right? And that's where politics gets involved because we're now they're saying this is a society you have issue. To codify it. No. You have to codify law. the law, make sure it allows for X, Y, Z today. And that's what we're seeing. Well, that is what we're seeing. Yeah. I sent you guys... Um, yeah. An article this morning of uh, a California school teacher who happens to be a Christian, but she is, I believe the article, I read it this morning, she's a gym teacher, and she absolutely would not allow 14, 15-year-old boys in the locker room naked with girls, regardless of what gender they claim to be. She's like, this is inappropriate, Something something in your knower should just tell you this is wrong. And the school board, (laughs) the the statements the school board released were unbelievable, man. Like it was, it was so. First of all, it was politicized. (laughs) I mean, it was so politicized. And secondly, it was she was required to do two things: you have to comply with our rules to not challenge anyone's gender claim, Mm -hmm. and for you to make this rule is challenging someone's gender claim. Exactly what we're talking about here: someone's internal feeling about who and what they are, and two. You have to lie to parents. They yeah. literally said, if another parent asks you... You can't... They're saying you obviously can't be dishonest, and you can't redirect, and so you have yes. to... Yeah, yes, yes. crazy. And, and so when you look at that, Ryan, back to your point, they're, they're making a rule or yeah. a law, whichever, but they're making a rule based on what? Mm-hmm. Uh, every, we've got to have rules, right? We've got to have social, civ- civil rules, yeah. but what are they based on? Yeah. What are they anchored in? They're either anchored in me, what I feel like I am, my personal orientation, or they're anchored in some authority that it's external to me that I have to submit to. And the Christian was saying, listen, it's anchored in God's Word. It's anchored in the truth. And this is just not true. Yeah. It just isn't true. And so I just thought that story was striking to me. It was just fantastic. I also, I don't know if you saw the story about the young man who's a Disney um, I think he's a Disney Channel actor on one of their shows, but he's identified as LGBTQ, but he just, I think, Sunday got baptized at Bethel Church in Redding, California. Mm-hmm. And they baptized him, and he came out of there, and man, if you looked at his confession, it was like, <clears throat> I believe in Jesus Christ, died for my sins, rose from the dead, there's evidence for the resurrection, I grew up a Christian, I left my faith, Mm. now I'm a Christian again, I'm publicly proclaiming my faith, but he still claims to be LGBTQ. Mm. And essentially when he was pressed on it by the media and by Hollywood, he said, oh, I was just there that weekend. I didn't know that this church had a stance against uh, the LGBTQ cause, and so I don't endorse everything that they teach. And it was like, oh, exactly what I talked about yesterday. Mm. People want to name <clears throat> Jesus as Savior and Lord, but they do not want to want to submit or surrender mm. to his authority on matters of their sexual identity. There is just the ultimate authority on that is just me. Mm. Well, and if yeah. that's true. I th- yeah, I, th- I think we live in a, a every system has a God and every God has a has a morality. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, individually we become the God of our own life and you know, what we, what we arbitrate, you know, we're the, we become the arbitrators of, of truth and, and, and falsehood and good and evil and all that stuff. 
Um, but the uh, the living in a democracy, a secular democracy, the god of that system is what? Demos, the people. Whatever the people deem is untouchable, whatever the people deem is true, whatever the people deem is... Um, and there's a danger in that. Not that I'm anti-democracy. Please don't hear mm-hmm. that. <laughs> yeah. um, and so whatever the public opinion is, is now the law. Is now is now what is good and what is evil, right? Um, and and it's uh, driven by the herd. And what's his uh, uh, what's his face Truman. Truman pointed out on seventy six. He says, "Yet increasingly we conflate the hurtful with the wrong, and the affirming with mm-hmm. the truth." Yeah. And our very language witnesses here to the collapsing mor- of morality into questions of taste, as shaped by the culture that surrounds us. Right. And so that kid. Is in one culture, one sun, you know, on Sunday morning, right. making a profession and getting baptized. He's in another culture on the next day and realizes that the stance of this church is hurtful to this, and yep. he goes, "Oh, I'm bowing to the, I'm bowing to the, you know, the order right. of this." Yeah. 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 Whatever group or whatever herd he finds himself in is the is his confession. I mean, yeah. I I don't know what the end of that story will be. I pray for him this morning. And I just pray for that young man that his faith would take hold and that, you know, he taught one of the things he said is he wants to be a follower of Jesus. It's like, good. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, follow him. Mm-hmm. Don't just follow his acts of grace. Yes, do that, but follow him when he speaks the truth. Yeah. Follow him when he speaks truths that are very hard for us to swallow, very hard for us to hear. And don't just follow the, the herd mentality because there's just nothing to anchor your belief system in the herd. Mm. If the herd changes its mind, I think yeah. that's what you're saying. Well, and the herd and whatever the herd deems hurtful in that moment, you know, it's hurtful to hear that I'm a sinner. Mm. Yes. It's hurtful to hear that I've transgressed the, right. you know, right. the, the, the holiness of God and, and the deserving of hell. Like yeah. that's, but is that truth or not is the question. Yeah. Right. Um, and to, to associate the hurtfulness of something with the truth of it. Um, and, I, we see this in the church too. Yeah, unfortunately, we see um, any any pushback on not not any frequently. If you give pushback on somebody's decisions in life, what frequency have you guys seen people they leave? No, because that church was hurtful. They didn't affirm that me. Oh, good point. You, you know, and so it's not just an out there thing. It's not right. just a uh, you know. Yeah. The toxic culture and the it infiltrates the church. Mm-hmm. Well, we bring our we bring the culture into the church, and that's one of the ways in which we reflect the cultural mindset. And not, you know, it's just, it's kind of like uh, you you counsel someone and you say, "Listen, man, you can't be doing that to your wife." You know, you tell them that mm-hmm. you can't be treating your wife that way. I've literally had this conversation with people. So I'm going to put you on a path here to discipleship, right? You're going to look like Jesus. When this is done, you're going to look like Jesus. You're going to love your wife the way Jesus loved the church, right? And then the guy's just gone. <laughs> like he just leaves uh, because it was just too hurtful. It was just too painful to stand there and face sin mm-hmm. and to look it in the face and say, I need Jesus to cleanse me of this. Mm-hmm. I need to be not just forgiven. Remember that that passage in First John one. What's that passage saying? First John one seven and nine. Um, 
if we confess our sins. Yes. What, is, what does that passage say? Uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ah, there's the two things, to forgive us and cleanse us. Mm-hmm. And we want the one, but we don't want the other. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want to be baptized at Bethel mm-hmm. Reading Church and sure. call myself a follower of Jesus, but I don't want to be cleansed of my sin. Mm-hmm. I don't want someone to tell me, <clears throat> I've got to be washed pure and then walk in the way. Yeah, fo- actually follow the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. I, I mean that that's the hardest thing about facing our sins. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah. hmm. and frequently, I mean, I like I I'm, I struggle with this too. Is if you get that pushback of hey, what you what you're doing doesn't isn't imaging Jesus. Hmm. Um, now. Yeah, I, I want to be free of the guilt of it, for sure. I want the forgiveness. But there's a tendency to be like, well, what's your problem? Mm-hmm. You know, like, why? Like, yeah. there's a tendency to say, well, if you had approached me with this better, I would have been, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like I mean, that's yeah, the, yeah. the tone police of, of yeah. the Gospel Coalition and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Like, it, sure. The, it's, the mm-hmm. question is, is this true? Yeah. We can, you know, we always are trying to become more gentle and, 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 bear the fruits of the spirit mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Like I'm not, I'm not arguing for just unrestrained smashing people with, with swords and you know, yeah. the fault, which is but there's, reality, but there's the reality of, of it's the, no, it, the very, the very fact that you confronted me about something makes that wrong. Hmm. Hebrews, you know, Hebrews three twelve is very clear. Exhort one another daily. Mm-hmm. We, we need the ministry and this is what we get it from uh, Paul Tripp but the ministry of exhortation and the ministry of intervention in one another's lives because sin can be fanned into flames so quick and self-rationalization mm-hmm. is so near to us. I need others in my life willing oh, to man, exhort Oh, man, you're right me. about that. And I, I think this mm-hmm. is a good application now just to talk, turn to application about this chapter <clears throat> is, you know, boy, you're right on. You, you guys are right on target here. I think we are to judge ourselves so that we will not be judged. Right, that's the whole Hebrews principle. Hebrews chapter 12, it's like God disciplines those whom he loves, and the whole reason why we apply this standard to ourselves is so that after I beat my body and make it my slave, I won't be disqualified for the prize. And so in my exhortation of you, um, it it immediately surfaces for me areas in my own heart that are just not pure, that are just not consecrated to God. And I have to spend a few days confessing my sins mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and uh and mm-hmm. so in in any case uh so we don't want anyone to take away from the, our discussion of this chapter here today that again that we hate culture or that we're angry at people mm-hmm. or that we're it's not that it's that man we want to get to the root of what is this chaos this moral insanity and chaos that is going on in our culture and then we want to turn God's standard in on us yeah. Mm-hmm. Turn the spotlight in on our own heart, and ask the question, man: If how how in our exhortation of culture, our exhortation of people who have wrong attitudes in the church, uh, can we self-correct ourselves? Is there yeah. a way we can do this better? And I think that's okay. Yeah. I think that's a good question mm-hmm. yeah. uh, for us to ask. This gives really when you when we've gone through Romans and you multiple Sundays advocated for the reality that we are enslaved to death and sin. This yeah. is the tangible representation oh, man, of what yeah. people are enslaved mm-hmm. to. This yeah, is I was what thinking death that and too. sin looks like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, <clears throat> yeah, I was just going to add, and I agree that 
we're to be examining ourselves, you know, judging ourselves, but having enough humility where we allow others, as Daniel was saying, just to speak yeah. into our lives as well. Because Absolutely. in this already not yet that you were talking about yesterday, we're still going to be battling sin. And so we can still yeah. be deceived in our hearts, you know, mm-hmm. and so we, we need we others can to be. see where we're, we're not seeing ourselves at times. And, yeah. and, the, and the thing is, the higher you go up in the chain, the harder it is to hear the truth about yourself. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. It's yeah. it's harder for me to talk to to say Alan or Jace or Vic or anybody that's been our you know a, 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 an elder board chairman yeah and to confront them and say you know man I'm seeing this tendency here can we work this out or can we address this that's yeah. a lot harder for me because they're my bosses yeah. <laughs> you know uh, than it is for um for. I don't know where I was going with that. Well, but what, I, I, for you to say it to your, your kids. Yeah, yeah, for me to say that to you or to yeah. my kids. And it's hmm. probably harder for you to feel like, I can go in Jeff's office and bring this up, mm-hmm. you know, um, hmm. than it is for me to come into your office and bring something up with hmm. you. I mean, so the higher you go up in the hierarchy, yeah. mm-hmm. the harder it is for to be surrounded by people who will yeah. actually tell you the truth. It's true. Mm-hmm. You're being a jerk. It's well, hard to, <laughs> to initiate it when you don't have relationships you know, Something like that. that. So this is why community is so powerful and necessary in the body. Whether and we we fabricate it in cla- classes and groups primarily, but if it happens informally, uh, that's fine too. But we yeah. need relationships for the exhortation to take place, for there mm-hmm. to be a, a, a an expectation amongst one another. I don't think we're going to do it just willy nilly, walking by the street or calling someone up as a cold call. Yeah, I think it comes mm-hmm. through what meaningful, consistent relationships. Yeah, I you're think right. Meaningful, consistent relationships around the the, the Word of God. Yes, because yeah. that's what can, will produce. You, it. you put a bunch of teenagers in a room together, and they're going <laughs> to affirm one another's sure. wisdom totally. and logic on every decision. Yes. You know, every thought that's in their <laughs> that's brain. A great idea. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> there needs to be some. Hey, we're we're all we're all working to like encourage one another and, and be spoken into, but again, by what standard? The, yep. the word, the has word of to be God. Central. So the word has to be. That's mm-hmm. why we are a, a community around the word. That's why you do a great job of, of trying to yep. to center the Grow discipleship the knowledge groups. of Jesus Christ by studying yeah. God. Try to, to uh, yeah. center the discipleship group or the, the the community groups around the word, around the right. you know whether it's a sermon discussion one or another or a book yeah. study or something like that. Yeah, um, such yeah. a great point, man. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've heard about the Asbury revival. Mm-hmm. That's been all over the news, and I've just sort of reserved judgment for it, and I really don't want to judge it, other than to say, you know, it does look like some of the reports that are coming out of it, um, the word is just not central. And I always, I am always suspect, this is just my natural suspicion, it, it, when the word is not central to something people claim that God is doing, it's not God. Hmm. I mean, it can't be the Holy Spirit leading people into experiences <clears throat> where the gospel and the word aren't central. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I and I think Daniel's instinct on that is so true. It's what what binds us together is is God's word, God's truth, and this is what our civilization does not have apart from God's word <laughs> yeah, and yeah. God's truth. Last thing I would end on, if I can, uh, is just page eighty-seven here, because this now becomes so important. And if you have any other insights from the chapter, feel free to... Warfare. uh, Yeah, it's uh, page 87, very bottom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He says the term recognition is important here. By recognition, I mean not simply the common sense notion of realizing that some claim to a particular identity exists, that, say, 
David claims to be gay. Rather, I mean that society does not simply tolerate David's identity, while not really approving of it, but actively affirms, supports, and encourages it. In other words, it is not enough to say that David, uh, to say to David that society will allow him to behave as he wishes in private without fear of persecution. That is mere tolerance. Society must also affirm that his identity is valid as that of anybody else, lest he feel marginalized through psychological oppression. This is a matter we will discuss in chapter six. And so I look at that and I kind of think that's the requirement in our culture today. The requirement is not just that you you live and let live. But it's intellectual dishonesty. If why does the savage man need an external source of affirmation if he's truly beholden just to himself? Wow. Mm, Why? It's like the internal is not enough. It's not. The yeah, soul what, craves it from someone external, something external. And what does that do? Right. What does that do to the Holy Spirit, <laughs> who comes to convict the world sin, of sin, sin, sin righteousness, and judgment? What does that turn him into? A monster. Hmm. He turns him into evil, yeah. wow. which is the bla- which is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying I've heard yeah. that. Please, <laughs> please hear that. But it turns God into into a, yeah. a monster. Yes. Oh, boy, you're right. You, mm-hmm. You're both right. You nailed it. Um, this idea that I, uh, that I am not just going to live in a free society and live and let live where people can call themselves whatever they want to call themselves and get as many you know tattoos of that on their body as they would like to, now I have to agree with them. I have to say, you're right. Yeah. That's what a human being is. Or you're <clears throat> right. That's what proper yeah. sexual desire is or otherwise you're the oppressor yes mm-hmm. yes and now become a psychological oppressor <laughs> an emotional terrorist an emotional terrorist <laughs> uh because i just want to say what god's word sure. says which is no actually you're wrong yeah and it might be hard to hear this but there are some things that are right and wrong yeah. and that's what i think people are not hearing is fundamentally... I think it opens the door, or this statement of meeting to affirm opens the door for us in an evangelistic sense to say, it seems to me that you're affirming that there's some transcendent property between us. Yeah. There's mm. something that is not purely material. But And then yeah. we could then... That opens the door. That's the crack in the door that you can begin to put your foot in. Sure can. Mm-hmm. In some way. Transcendence is a real yeah. thing. It, yes. There's transcendent it, property. Transcendence and the ashes of sin... They start to taste pretty bitter after after a while. Yep. And like you were saying about uh, what's the guy's name? Andrew what? Tate. Yep. What is that his name? He who got arrested for sex trafficking. Um, <laughs> people do begin to crave voices, and you're here secularists now. You know, mm-hmm. like people like Jordan Peterson and and others, who are pushing back on this. Mm-hmm. And you think, why are they not listening to Christians? Or why are they not listening to people who are overtly Bible-believing Christians? Well, it's because this is all they have access to, and they just crave it. They just crave the truth. Because the lie, after a while, just gets so, just begins to taste so bitter in your mouth. It's, It's like that scene in Revelation where John is told, eat the scroll, and it is delicious. Like, he eats the scroll, it tastes so good, but then it turns bitter in his stomach. Mm. You know, it's like, that's the scene here. It's good like point. going down initially. That's a good point. This thing feels mm. 
like it's right, but then once I've swallowed it and metabolized it, it clearly was wrong for me to eat papyrus. You know, like it just was wrong. <laughs> How so. much darker can society or culture get based on this? Can't d- does it need to get darker? I think is it the will. dawn still coming? Oh, way far no, I think it's a ways away. Okay, I, it might not even be in our lifetime. I, I, I think some other really bad things have to happen mm-hmm. in order for people to begin to look to the light. Mm-hmm. Well, and, if you look uh, at the progression of Romans one, um, we're kind of in the we're at the bottom, right? No, we're in the. Uh, uh, so we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We give yes. glory to the creature rather than creation. Been given over to idolatry. Now we're being given over to desire exactly. and disgraceful passion, unnatural, which ends up translating into the invention of all kinds of evils and, and, yes. and yeah. more mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh well, then we get we got to live through Romans two before Romans three. Yeah. So <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> no, we stand in the hope of Christ. Yeah. We it's stand important in the hope, hope of Jesus. It's important to emphasize yeah. that. Yes, that we, we are do. part of the church, and, and we also um, pray in faith. Yeah. yeah, we pray with hope, and we pray in faith that our culture will experience another great awakening. Yeah, sure, and, absolutely. And we pray, we pray like what you were talking about in your sermon yesterday. Christ is the King. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This. He is the king of Amen. the earth. And though That's there right. are rebellions and there are revolutions. And in his sovereignty, he is allowing that yeah. by his grace so that all who are appointed to salvation will come in, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can trust that this moment, this moment that we live in, this moment that our children have been born into, uh, that this moment is under the sovereignty of God. Yeah, that's right. And that Amen. and that we have been appointed for, for this time as well. Mm-hmm. Amen. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it at that. You guys want to hear where I think Truman's wrong? Well, yes, I do. I'm just kidding. It's a, it's a total aside. We can talk about <laughs> Off it. Off camera? So, just yeah. drop Okay, right all right. <laughs> Thank you guys for Thank another you. awesome, That's stimulating great. conversation. Absolutely. We'll see you next time. Let's go get coffee.